Welcome to the Femininja podcast. This series was co-curated and co-hosted with our friends at Who's Knowledge. These episodes were recorded during the Decolonizing the Internet East Africa gathering in Lusaka, Zambia. We want to let you know that this podcast contains sensitive information that may be triggering or difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Good afternoon. My name is Sylvia Kerubo from Femnet and I work there as a digital media officer. And I'm happy to be joined my, by my fellow hosts. I'm Yulendria Pasami. I am the communications associate for the Visible Wiki Woman campaign at Who's Knowledge. And today we have the wonderful... Merone Stefanos. Thank you for having me. <laughs> she's just told us she's done radio for 20 years. Yeah. You should be the one. Yeah. So we'll just get uh, right into it. Uh, okay. Maron, welcome. welcome. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast, the show. Uh, so just give us a brief background, you know, of, you know, who you are, what you do, maybe if you want to, where you're coming from. I am Maron Stefanos. I am Swedish Eritrean. I left Eritrea when I was 12 years old. I've lived in Sweden most of my life. Being originally from Eritrea, uh, but at the same time having no clue how Eritrea was, how back home was. So I, you know, one day I just decided, oh, I'm going back home, I'm moving actually. And, and so I packed up and, and, and moved to Eritrea. And when I got there, so I had no clue that it was dictatorship. So it, it was like shocking to be in a place where everybody have to do military service, women and, and men. And so... Um, w- like girls that were my age has been doing their military service like for many years. So Eritrea is a country where everybody from age 15, 16 have to do military service until you are 50. So that means to get discharged, you are 50 or old. And, and so as a woman, what can you be when you are 50? Because basically they have taken all your golden years and, and, and by the time you are discharged, like you are just damaged goods. That's, that's what it is. So even for the men, you know, so... Uh, coming from Sweden, having grown up in Sweden from a democratic country, coming to Eritrea was just shocking to me, like seeing every block in the street, you know, you're you're being asked for a permission paper because like everybody's in a military, the whole country is like in a military. So um, when you are out on the streets in cities, different cities, you know, there's always military police asking, what are you doing here? Because there's no, a young person is not supposed to be in a city, you're supposed to be at a military camp. So, and I would just show my Swedish passport and, and for me, you know, they would just let me pass while my younger brother, who has been doing military service like forever, had to hide and he would be hunted because he did not report back to his post like with two days ago or something, then he would be rounded up and taken back. So just this just... Um, as a person who grew up uh, reading about the Holocaust, it just reminded me, like I felt like the military police were the Gestapos asking Jewish people for ID just to see if they were Jewish or not. So that just did not make sense. After living there for two years, so I decided to go back to Eritrea and uh, I mean to go back to Sweden 
And I had no plan of becoming an activist or anything, but it was like when I met Eritreans that grew up in Sweden was me, but they were like very pro-dictatorship and they would say like Eritrea is on the right track, everything is beautiful. I'd be like, nope. I lived there for two years and, and people are being hunted down and, and young people cannot go to school. They don't have the, a life to lead. I mean, like, basically, they're slaves of the of the regime in Eritrea. And, and so all my friends start pushing me away, saying, oh, she's a traitor, she's becoming a traitor or something. So you had to look for other people that were like-minded. So they kind of made me into the activist that I am today, like, even though I had no intention into opposing or becoming an activist, but... It just became, you know, I felt like I had to do something about it. I just could not ignore what was going on back home, even though I lived in Sweden. So I decided to join groups, young people that was opposing or that were activists, you know. So and in Sweden, there were many opposition groups, but I couldn't like they they didn't inspire me. And I'm a, a, the kind of person like I cannot join unless you, there is an inspiration somewhere. Then, yeah. So most of the opposition groups were like talking bad about each other instead of selling their ideas to recruit you. So that just, I felt like, no, I'm not joining these groups. And, and then, but there were these young university students in South Africa, Eritreans that were studying abroad in South Africa and got fed up and formed themselves as an organization. And but they were so inspiring. The reason that they inspired me was these were young people that I knew back home as a kid and some of them were like children of ministers and going against their fathers and, and so that was like so cool and, and so I contacted them and I said can I be uh, your member even though I'm in Sweden I'm not in South Africa they said yeah sure so uh, joined this group uh, Eritrean Movement for Democracy and Human Rights it was a youth movement based in South Africa so that same group a few months later decided to to have a radio that was broadcasting into Eritrea because um, since 2001, September 2001, uh, the free press was banned. So it's exactly 21 years now. Uh, for the people in Eritrea, they have only like one state media, one TV, one radio, one newspaper, and it's all just like the regime propaganda. Like So if you are the person that follows only the state media, that means the Arab Spring never happened, Gaddafi is still in power, Mubarak is still in power because it was never reported. So uh, we felt there's a lack of information and, and our people, the internet connection to your trace, like the penetration is three to six percent of people have access to internet. Uh, and that is like those that have access to internet, like or majority of the people, they go to internet cafes, but you have to register your name, your ID, and, and which computer from what time to what time that you use. So it's, it's like there is no safety at all like for somebody to use internet because you'd get arrested within a second if you opened up uh, pages that you're not supposed to open. <clears throat> so that was, um, we just felt like, but how do we reach the people? So we decided to, to do shortwave. Uh, so, because shortwave, anybody can afford it. You don't even need a TV or anything. People need only a battery, at least even if there is no electricity. So that's from a new activist. And then I embarked into journalism, even though I don't have like journalism background, but like the group were like so great, literally teaching me how to, to record, how to edit, how to send and all this. At that time, we didn't even know like if people were listening to us because there was no feedback, like how how... 
So we start getting feedback like three, four years later because people would be like, oh, I used to listen to you when I was in Eritrea. But this is like after they flee when they are like outside. So that, that was like, it took years to get feedback that if, if people actually listen to us or not. Okay, of course, like people that we knew were listening to us, but we didn't know how much or like how big was it. Uh, then 2009, um, another friend was talking about like, oh, let's do radio, but like doing it 24 hours. And, and so we switched uh, to satellite 24 hours and, and did like two hours shortwave as well. So my program uh, at the beginning was, uh, I was covering nonviolence movements, um, you know, human rights. Uh, everything was political. So for the first four years, but then I just felt frustrated. I felt like I'm not really helping the people inside Eritrea. I'm too far away. And uh, so I just said, if I cannot help Eritreans inside Eritrea, so let me focus on Eritreans that are outside because it's the same, like they are Eritreans. So why should I just focus on the people inside? Because, because of the dictatorship, as I said, everybody have to do military service age 15 to 50. So... Eritreans think the only solution is like to flee. Mm-hmm. So we are like um, next to Syrians. We are the second largest refugee producing country on earth per capita. So, and we are like a population of 3.6 uh, and over a million have already fled the past 20 years. So it's like we are getting extinct in, in Eritrea. Like only old people and children are left because there is no young people. It's like the most empty city that you would find if you went to the capital. You would be shocked how... There are too little people in the capital. As if you go anywhere in Africa, it's like very crowded. Capital cities are often very crowded, but not in Eritrea. So I just, you know, I, I, you know, I decided, let me interview refugees. And it was supposed to be one interview. That's it, just one. So this guy, uh, I was talking to him on social media, and he said that his brother was kidnapped and, and sold as a slave in Egypt, and they were asking $20,000 per person. And I was like, no, like, you must be kidding. And said, no, for real, my brother is one of the, those that are kidnapped right now. So he said, if you don't believe me, call them. And so the first 24 hours, I, I just decided, no, this is just, it can't be true, you know. Even though I've heard, like, refugees getting kidnapped before, but the amount was like $2,000 or something. So nobody buzzered. People were just paying because it was so little. So uh, he gives me the phone number. So the first 24 hours, I just decided to ignore it, just say, no, this is just must be a lie. But uh, I, I have this, my conscience couldn't allow me, like I couldn't sleep the whole night. I was struggling to sleep. I'm like, what if it's true? And I totally decided to dismiss them. So I woke up at six because I couldn't sleep. And uh, I normally call using like calling apps like Skype or VoIP or something. But um, that morning, because I was just distressed and I was thinking, what if it's true or not? Let me just call and find out. So I used my landline number and called them. And so this guy picked up. He sounds like 20, 21-year-old young man. Uh, and now he was asking, who do you want to speak to? And I was like, no, I, I don't know anybody. My name is Meron. I'm a journalist, and, and I heard about the situation here, and I would like to interview people. So the guy was crying, but the way he was crying was just, 
so touching because I've never heard a 21-year-old man cry like a little baby. It was just too much. The way he cried was just so touching. And he was telling me that um, while escaping Eritrea, so because I know five to 6,000 young people are fleeing on a monthly basis to Sudan, so some gangs start waiting at the border and kidnapping these people. And when you are new, you don't know where you're going, so they just tell you, oh, you want to go to the refugee camp and, and we'll help you. But what you don't know is like they're just putting you in a car and selling you off to the Bedouins in Egypt where you would be auctioned as a slave and, and people will will buy you. So there are so many traffickers. They, what they do is like they have kidnapped maybe 2,000 Eritreans and then they would put them in an auction and tell you, uh, who do you have outside? And so the ones that have people in the U.S. will be in this line. The, the ones that have people in Europe would be in the other line. And then half of the group will be like, we don't have anyone, but we have people in Eritrea. We are Eritreans. Uh, and so, so the traffickers that are there would pick the ones that are in the U.S. would be sold off with a higher amount, while those in Europe maybe will be sold off the same amount. And those that doesn't have anyone in the West would be sold off like maybe for $1,000 a person. And then these traffickers take you, so they have actually built houses for torture, just for torture purposes. So the houses are built, like, to torture these people. It's in the middle of nowhere, and, and uh, it's a demilitarized zone, so the military cannot come, they know. And, and So this group, you know, it was a group of 29, the ones that I interviewed, and, and it was only one female, all 28 male and, and so when they were telling me about the torture method, I just couldn't believe because they were getting tortured 24 hours, burned by molten plastic bags and dripping it in their bags and, and electrifying them with 360 degrees of electricity. And, and it was just everything that sadistic was being committed towards these innocent refugees. And on top of that, gang rape by, like as a, as a way of to punish you, five, six men would, would rape the man, the woman, and then they would force you to call your family. So your family have to listen as you're getting raped. Oh. So that's what makes you pay because you cannot tolerate uh, <clears throat> the phone calls. Mm. So families will pay anything just not to hear their loved ones screaming and getting raped and getting burned and, and, and you're forced to listen. So I just couldn't believe that at this time when people are talking about slavery was abolished a long time ago and then this was being committed by Africans against other Africans, so that just did not add up to me. And so it was touching, but what was the problem was like the hostages had saved my number because I called using my landline. So 24 hours people are calling me, like every hostage is like begging, please, my sister, please help me, please help me. Like I'm, I have no one to help me, but I'm like $20,000 a person. I don't have that. Like even if I live in Europe, it's just too much. So the group said, okay, we understand it's too much, but so they said, okay, just save the girl because she was the only girl and, and the punishment for her was worse because um, the traffickers would rape her and then they would force her fellow hostages to rape her as well as a punishment because nobody was paying for her. She comes from a very poor family. She had no one that could pay. So... I was very touched by her story and, and at first I was so naive because I felt like the West would care because just felt like it's because they don't know. If I notify everyone, then they would just go and rescue them and this will just stop. That's, I was that naive. 
So I'm emailing the State of Department, European Union, European Commission, every organization I can think of, Amnesty Human Rights Watch, every anti-trafficking organization in the world I've emailed and I waited three weeks, nobody cared. So by the time it went on three weeks, so five of the hostages that I've interviewed had died already as a result of torture. Then I just said, no, I cannot just sit and, and do nothing. So I know paying ransom is, it will increase, but what else do you do when it's your loved one? And your option is like you pay or you die. So um, I decided to raise money using my radio program. And I was like, anybody wants to save this girl, just uh, contact me and I'll tell you how to send the money. And, and so I ended up paying for her. But then when you pay for one person, every hostage hears about you. And, and it became... What was supposed to be one phone call became my lifetime commitment fighting these traffickers and, and uh, saving the hostages. And, and so one thing led to another. And then it just my radio program became from a, a regular radio program. It became like a hotline for refugees. So it could be refugees that are in the Mediterranean Sea drowning. They're like, ah... They don't even know my name, Meron, is a unisex name, so they don't even know if it's a girl or it's a female or male. But So my number is usually written in prisons in Libya, Egypt, or elsewhere, and they say, if you have a problem, call this number. So they don't really know who they are calling, but they would call and, and say, oh, we're 800 uh, African refugees drowning in the Mediterranean Sea, and we need your help, and, and our life is in your hand after God. You're the only person that can save us and haven't asked for a responsibility, that kind of responsibility. But what can you do when these people are, uh, you know, when they are drowning? You cannot just tell them, you know what, I'm busy or something. So uh, the first call was the worst because it took like 78 hours to send them help because the European bureaucracy saving these people would mean taking in 800 black Africans into Europe. So... Italy was telling me, oh, no, they're closer to Malta, call Malta. And Malta is like, no, they're closer to Italy. Like, it went like 78 hours without. By that time, the water was almost up to their neck and, and they're screaming and begging me like I'm, I am the one that gets to decide. But it was, so I just went out on Twitter and started tweeting about this, how Italians and Maltese refused to rescue 800 African refugees drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. So that kind of... Followers, I mean, like most of my followers are Western journalists, so they kind of picked it up the story and start writing. So <clears throat> the Maltese government at last, you know, because when journalists start writing about it, so they felt like they had to rescue them. And, and so they rescued them. But that became like now everybody heard uh, because we called her when we were drowning and thanks to her, we are alive. So... Then people start saving my number before they leave Africa, just in case they run into some oh. kind of problem. <laughs> and um, calls you from all over the world. Uh-huh. It could be refugees about to be deported to one place where they could be faced death sentence or something, you know, trying to stop their deportation. It could be refugees kidnapped, drowning in the Mediterranean Sea, getting exploited. It's just a never-ending suffering like that the refugees go through in order to reach from one place to... Since there is no safe passage, so people will always be exploited. So basically, this is what I've been doing. You know, well, I was supposed to be this regular journalist, but it became like a hotline where 
a lot of people hate listening to my program because it's always screaming and someone begging and it's it's too traumatizing. A lot of people don't like listening to people suffering. So often a lot of my friends tell me, oh, you know, I stopped listening to your program because it's too depressing or you make me feel hopeless. But for me, the reason I, I always bring up in my program like the worst stories is to discourage people from fleeing, to, to tell them like this is what happened when you flee. So if you are going to die in the Mediterranean Sea or if you are going to die as a result of torture, so why not just sit at home and fight back whatever is driving you out of the country? So that's the message of my program. Uh, but I don't know. My hope is like at least from 10 people that listen, if I can discourage one, that's that's a success. And, and that's why I've been doing this for many, many years and, and now taking a break after 20 years, doing this for 20 years. Um, I just got fed up. I said, that's it. I'm not crying anymore because for how long am I going to cry? So... Thank you. Thank you so much, Maron, for, you know, that uh, taking us through, through your journey. And it's so, so touching. And, you know, just learning that we still have people, we still have, in 2022, we still have people who have limited access to the internet. These stories have not been told anywhere. This, I'm hearing this, honestly, for the first time. Because... We, we, no one is telling these stories. And, you know, you, you cannot do it by yourself. Yeah. And we need more people to be able to jump, you know, on this discussion so that people can be saved. And I don't know if much can be done about the government, the Eritrean government. <laughs> I know that's a, that, that's a very tough conversation to have, but I'd just like uh, to know from you, how has the internet helped you? First, do you feel like it has helped you? And if, you know, if yes, how do you feel that it has helped you in, you know, your journey and your cause? Oh, well, I mean, to me, I'm a product of internet. My activism started online. So I, I met like-minded people. If it wasn't like for social media, I wouldn't be the activist. I mean, I wouldn't even care about Eritrea, if I'm going to be honest. But having social media discussions with fellow Eritreans in diaspora and, and discussing, like, what do we do? That's how... We all became activists, and, and that's uh, so. Social media, we Eritreans, at least for us Eritreans in diaspora, you know, it's the best thing that happened to us because at least we have this large diaspora community, you know, and having, I mean, way before Facebook started. So, like, I'm talking about 20 years ago, we were using Paltalk. It was like an audio chat that was very popular, and, and so that's where. I actually met the, the group in South Africa. You know, if, if it wasn't for Paltok, I wouldn't even join these people. So to me, um, internet has been great, but at the same time, it, it can be, uh, as a woman, it can be awful as well because it's, it's a place where you can uh, use it like for so many things, like, um, but at the same time, it's, it's also, it have its negative side, uh, uh, which is like getting trolled as a woman. It's like no matter what ideas you have, people never discuss your ideas, it's always about body shaming you and, and, and uh, belittling you as a woman or how you look or uh, whatever. But it's so, it can be very brutal at times, you know. And I, I remember like when my son was five and he was diagnosed with diabetic and, and type one. And, and so I was at the hospital not knowing, you know, it, because it just happened yesterday. So you're at the hospital, you don't know if he's going to, to live or die because I was clueless about child diabetic at that time. Uh, so here I am worrying, and, and so 
we have this large community that is like uh, at that time 90% were supporting the Eritrean government. Uh, so they just heard about uh, that uh, my son was in a hospital, I was at the hospital, and, and so suddenly they just put it out, my number, I think, or the hospital number, and, and they, they would call and, and say, I hope your son dies, you fucking traitor, uh, you deserve it, or something. So that, that's, that's, that gets to you, you know, when you're worrying about your son, if he will leave it or not, and, and then you have these trolls that he don't even know just because he criticized the president and these people feel they have a right to actually look for your number and call you when you are at, in your most distressful moment. And, and so it gets to you, but like I'm thick-skinned, so I try not to let them. Uh, but instead, but uh, we have a long way to go. I mean, because social media companies are not taking their responsibility, especially when it comes to minority rights. Uh, we're not being protected. Like if, if somebody insults you in English, it, you know, there's action is taken away right, right away. They will take action uh, to block the person or delete the post or whatever. But uh, if someone, you know, there's this Facebook post that have been up for at least six, seven months now, now since January, actually, like almost nine months. It says, oh, those of you that live in Sweden, please knock off her teeth and, and um, cripple her. This was a call for all Eritreans that love their country. If they love their country, they should do this to me. And then it also attaches my Twitter um, <clears throat> account and, and says, go also on Twitter and, and tell her what you think about her. So suddenly, you know, I noticed like, there were so many trolls, like I'm used to all the trolls on Twitter, I know them already, but then now was like new names and, and a bunch of them at once. I'm like, what's going on? What have I done this time? You know? <laughs> what did I say? But I've been like very busy at, during that week. I didn't really say anything. But then a friend of mine comes the same week from the States to visit me. So I was like, oh, let's take out my friend to Eritrean nightclub, which I don't really go to Eritrean nightclubs often. I go maybe once every five years or something, just to avoid people. So we go there. For the first time, there was like seven attacks against me that same night at the nightclub. And I did not understand because normally people line up to ask for an autograph, to take a picture with me, but this was like something new and, and it was like strange, like why? Because I see one of my friends is fighting there, but what my friends were doing is the fight was about me, but they were trying to keep me away so that I don't hear that it's about me. So I thought they're fighting with different people, but the next day then I, they are telling me, no, the fight was about you because they were on their way to attack you, so we were trying to prevent them. And it's like, what's going on? So. A friend of mine that lives in Stockholm, I was telling her about this, and she's like, oh, yeah, it could be because of the Facebook post. Then she sends me the link. Then it makes sense. Uh, it also made sense why the trolls on Twitter suddenly increased because now these are like Facebook trolls coming to Twitter. I've reported this post maybe 10, 15 times on Facebook. It's still up there. No matter how many times you report it, it's just social media companies are not taking our suffering seriously, like they would never do that to an European or any other, I mean, like it's bad for others as well, but uh, at least when it's written with European languages, actions are taken. If it's in Swedish, be it in Swedish, or even though the Swedish population is 10 million, you have larger population here, but of course they're going to take Sweden more serious than 
here in Africa or like African languages or Arabic language, like Asian languages, it's often totally neglected. So that, that, that part I hate about Facebook, I mean about internet, so the whole how social media companies like a bunch of young men that became millionaires, billionaires are deciding over over our lives. They're selling our data. They're doing so many things. So that part I don't like, but it's a greatest uh, creation at the same time. It has co- internet has connected us all over the world. I mean, if it wasn't for internet, we wouldn't be in this conference as well. So That is so yeah. true. <laughs> I think you've just uh, reminded me of someone who he's a creator of some platform that people use to like Photoshop faces and you know how they like to pretend and say, you know, when we were creating this thing, we wanted it to be, you know, for the good of the people. We didn't know it was going to become this really terrible thing that people use against others. I feel like that's social media for us, you know. And you've mentioned, I I really wanted to ask you about, you know, your colonization internet story, which (laughs) honestly we have heard. Because if they even considered our languages, if they even took time to include our languages in, you know, their systems and, you know, when they're creating these applications and involving people, maybe it wouldn't have gone that far. If they took our reporting seriously, it would never have gotten that far. Or maybe if more white people had reported, maybe they would have been like, oh, maybe this is serious. But you see, it doesn't have to get to that point, you know? And so for me, what I would ask you is, then what does decolonization mean to you? Yeah, well, decolonization is, you know, um, restoring things the way it was supposed to be. Like it started for me, it's, it's, you know, for a lot of people, it might be like removing things when we're talking about decolonization. But to me, it's like... How was it before our colonizers came over here? You know, and and so, you know, I want to start there. Like, uh, I want to know about Africa before our colonizations, uh, colonizers arrived. So it have to start from there, but it, it's just giving, putting knowledge out there that whatever knowledge is it that you want to put. So it, it depends on what term, like there is... You know, a lot of people would be like, oh, Africa is decolonized, but not really. Like, are we really decolonized? I mean, we are still colonized, whether it's economically or, you know, okay, so the British left, but it feels Africa is like under Chinese colonization right now because, like, I mean, go to Uganda. Like, the Ugandan airport is owned by Chinese company <laughs> because they couldn't pay for it. So it's actually, like, the Chinese can take it or do whatever they want to with the Ugandan uh, airport. So if you go to every country in Africa right now, it's like we're seeing, you know, this economical colonization, a new form. And, and then, of course, there is this information colonization as well where the U.S. is telling you either on our side or that side so you either have to buy that story or, or that story there is no like in between it, it doesn't allow you to have your own opinion uh, to choose and decide like uh, what makes sense to you but it, everything is decided so we're still colonized um, at least for us black people uh, and that's why wherever we go we have no respect um, whether it be it in Europe, you know, I, I see like Africans are dying, more black people are dying in Europe on a daily basis in the, using the Mediterranean Sea or Igan Sea. But 
then Europeans like to mock Americans and say, black lives matter. I'm like, come on, give me a break. You're killing more black people here. It's, it's the only thing is just the media is not talking about it. Um, blacks in Europe are not protesting like the way blacks in America are protesting. This is the only difference. Uh, so mm, we are still colonized, be it information, financially, physically, or in any way. <laughs> yeah. I definitely agree on your point of the legacies of colonialism being so internalized and entrenched and we have new powers coming in from the East into Africa in construction, in extractive economies that the old colonial superpowers developed here. And I guess I wanted to ask you more about what you think tech possibilities or tech tools for a different future could be, maybe from the work you're doing with DARE. I know we've spoken about crypto. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> so I'm into Bitcoin, um, but not. I don't look at Bitcoin as something um, like most people think of Bitcoin, of how to make money and save and, and make double the amount or whatever you, you invest, but that's not the case like with me. Uh, why I'm interested in Bitcoin is like it's a freedom money. Bitcoin doesn't discriminate. Anybody can can own a Bitcoin. Like especially here in Africa, I I think it's it's you know when you have eighty percent of Africans who are unbanked, around eighty percent have no ID. So how do we expect like for anything to work for us? You, you get me? So it becomes difficult. So you are automatically left behind because you don't have a bank account. In Sweden, like my, my son had a bank account since he was five-year-old. <laughs> so the, that's like the, the difference is huge. And, and for a lot of people, they're just thinking, what's the point of having a bank or not? But why not? Like without a bank, then you cannot borrow money, you cannot invest. I mean, you're, you're, you're being left behind a lot of things just because you don't have ID. Even if I want to send you money, it becomes difficult for you to, to accept money because you don't have ID, you don't have a bank account. So you would be dependent on hawala money transfers, like illegal means, and, and there is no guarantee that you'll get your money or not. So I start looking at Bitcoin as a way of basic right for, for every human being because all you need is just a wallet, download it, an app, and, and all you need is an email you don't need to put your name. You don't need to put anything. So uh, the anonymity of it is is what attracts me because um, how much money we have in our bank account is, is supposed to be private. No government is supposed to know how much you have in your account or whether if I send money, they will ask why are you sending this money to that person. Uh, so it's an invasion of our privacy, but unfortunately the world have accepted it for far too long. It has become like the normal thing. Like people would be like, yeah, of course, it's a government. They have to know how much money you have. Nope, they don't. It's, it's, it's my private way there. How much money I save or how much money I spend should be private. But we don't have that privacy. So that's where Bitcoin comes and it, it gives you... 100% uh, total anonymity, uh, receiving it, sending it. Uh, it helps in many ways. Not like, and it's, I use it as a way of transferring money. So I've been teaching refugees. I do workshops for refugees and vulnerable groups uh, on Bitcoin. And it's, 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 so most of them are saying, thank you. Like you have made my life easy because 
they don't have to depend on hawalas. They don't have to be, need ID or anything. Like I, I, I sent my, uh, Bitcoin using Lightning wallets and, and it arrives within a second and it's almost free. So it's really great. And, and there are ways that you can convert your uh, Bitcoin into money, into fiat money uh, within a second. It makes life easy for everybody and, and so I feel more Africans should use it because for these purposes, you know, like as money transfer, faster, uh, anonymous, especially for organizations, you know, a lot of African governments don't allow foreign aid. You'll be accused of being a foreign spy just because you received $200 donation from US or somewhere else. So a lot of people, a lot of NGOs are suffering because they cannot get money even though many want to fund them. But it has become difficult because of this government would go after you just for receiving whatever amount of money. So, But Bitcoin doesn't do that. You, you know, you can just receive money secretly and, and, and even if governments would arrest you. So for an organization, the key is like three keys, three people in different places. So if you get arrested and, and they torture you and you give up your code, they still cannot access your Bitcoin because they would need the other two people to give them the code for, for them to access and see how much money you have. So which that's what I love about it. And um, so I'm into that, uh, trying, especially right now, you know, I'm in Africa and uh, the main reason that I came to Africa is to, to teach Bitcoin, but not only that, but to start uh, Bitcoin mining. But there's this thing, like it's, it's a new project that I'm trying and it's Bitcoin mining is... I'm trying to give villagers in Africa that do not have electricity, to give them free electricity using solar power as at the same time you're mining. So I'm trying out this project. It's, it's early. I don't want to say much about it, but it's in, in the work. So there's a lot you can do when it comes to tech. I mean, this is crypto, but I'm also interested in providing Eritrean people access to Internet. It's something that I've been working on for many, many years. Uh, yeah, so like Iranians found a way because the Iranian government has is very strict, uh, controls the internet and everything. So opposition figures have been, you know, their movements have been limited online and, and bet like some Iranian activists actually created an internet where you can send internet via satellite dish to anywhere in the world for free. And, and, and so these people, all they need is like, if they have a satellite dish, then you just put a USB stick and download two gigabytes at a time, like fast internet and th that the government cannot control. Mm -hmm. So this is what I'm trying to do for Eritrea. And hopefully it will be... I mean, it's doable, but the problem is always money. You know, it, it would it cost like at least $1 million to do that. So but hopefully one day I'll do it. <laughs> My head is just like... I'm still processing everything you've been telling us, Nora. I'm just like, yeah, no damn. You've also just kind of traveled across the length and breadth of like human experience and like being an observer, participant, a witness to so many things that so many of us on the African continent are oblivious to and don't know about. And if our internet infrastructures and if our the content and the narrative we were, you know, reading online was more centered on us and on our stories and created by us, that wouldn't be the case, right? Of course, yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, you know how they say history is written by the winners. So whoever is in power writes history the way they want to. That's why I was saying earlier, like, we don't really know much about Africa before the colonization because 
all the books that existed were burned or destroyed so that we can't even learn about our background, which is really sad because we know like this is like the ancestral continent. <laughs> but at the same time, it's it's like the West is trying to tell you like it's, it's, it's just this continent that shouldn't even exist. That's the way people treat us. I mean, I, I mean, like, if you're in Europe, black woman or a black person, you know, you're discriminated for for being dark-skinned and you're deprived of all kinds of opportunities just because of this, your skin color or you happen to have an African name. So you are left behind of a lot of things just because of your skin color. And, and what pisses me off as an African who grew up in Europe and whenever I come to Africa, I'm more discriminated in Africa. <laughs> yeah, so we have this colorism problem in Africa where we respect people that are light-skinned better than dark-skinned. I think hmm, you're talking about discrimination both in Europe and then also how in Africa discrimination takes on a colorism kind of... Um, Bend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's so sad because um, when I'm in Europe, you're like, okay, you accept it because you feel like, yeah, you are in a white man's land. What can you do, you know? But when you come to your continent, to Africa, like I'm, 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 you know, the first thing to me, it's strange. Like when I first arrive in Africa, and then I see everybody's black, and I, I, I feel like, where am I? Because I'm not used to it. like uh, normally, you know, like. You see two, three black people when, within a million of white people. And then here, just having that, seeing everybody black, it gives you this sense of home feeling, even though I'm not in Eritrea, but like I'm in Zambia right now, but I feel like I'm at home. This is my continent. And I, I feel like it belongs to me as much as it belongs to Zambians because we are all Africans. So, so that's the, the way I feel. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Like... You know, it doesn't matter if you came from Europe or not, but all they see is your dark skin and, and, and you are mistreated or, you know, everywhere you go. It's, it's, it's always... Uh, I've, I remember, like, a few years ago, I went on vacation to Dakar. We were denied, me and my friend, we were two black women staying in Radisson Blue Hotel and, and they refused to serve us, the waiters, like the black waiters. They, because they told, like, two black women cannot afford to have a drink at this expensive hotel. <laughs> yeah. So we actually had to call the white manager to... He had to tell them, it's okay, serve them. But And then eight hours later, so this, the people that were working changed shift, new staff came and they refused to serve us again. So we had to go to the same manager and complain and they had to tell them, like, no, serve them. So this happens everywhere you go, like... When I'm flying Ethiopian Airlines, this will happen. Anything you ask, like the, when um, when you tell them, like they put on music, which is weird. I've never seen someone uh, inside airplane like people normally don't play music, but they do. So when you tell them, can you put it down because sometimes it's too loud. I'm like, please, you know, I want to listen to my own music, <laughs> not to your music. But they'll be like ignoring you, like who does she think she is kind of thing. And, uh, and then a white person says, excuse me. And then you'll be like, yes, sir, we're sorry for that. And, and I'm like, come on. I mean, this is the reason where we are because until the moment we start loving our color, we will always be hated wherever we are. And, and um, yeah, so that, that makes me sad. And I wish that um, internet could, 
could help change that, but unfortunately it hasn't done. Of course, there is this African solidarity, pan-African movements online and things, but often I find them to be hypocritical because it'd be like what they, one thing they have in common is like their hate for white people, but nothing really about Africa. Like, yeah, I'm like, you know, hold your governments accountable first. I mean, like, you know, okay, we can talk about colonization, what it did to us. I mean, the conflict it left behind, but still... Um, to me, our biggest problem is not like the, our colonizers. It's, it's like our leaders that that will appease these colonizers mm -hmm. mm. <laughs> to continue oppress us. Like there is no, you know, when blacks are dying every day in the Mediterranean Sea, you wouldn't see like any African Union doesn't say anything. anything. About oh, the African Union—they are the most useless. Yeah. Exactly. So if your own people don't respect you, how do you expect like foreigners to respect you? Yes. And that's, yeah. that's what drives me crazy about Africa. If like, you don't have dignity for yeah, yourself and respect yourself. yourself. Yeah. But then again, how can we love ourselves? Because all our life, our ancestors have been told like how primitive they are. They are uncivilized. You are this, you are that. Uh, you know, Africans were walking around naked and, and they were very free people. And then white people came and told them, oh, you're so uncivilized. How can you just not cover yourself? Please cover yourself. So... Uh, They humiliate them into they into wearing clothes that they never felt comfortable with, and and now white people are telling us oh, Africans are so primitive because they cover themselves all over their body. I'm like, come on, I mean, <laughs> you can't win. Yeah, you're the ones that made us into yeah. wearing clothes, and now you're telling us like, why are you covering yourself? You're so primitive. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> it's, yeah it's crazy. Um, so I think as we're talking about the more psychological and emotional aspects, the psychic aspects to colonialism. Something I wanted to ask you about, just through your experiences as a journalist, as somebody who has their PhD in refugee studies, how does self-care factor into your life? How do you process um, hearing these really traumatic and traumatizing stories? Or do you process it? I mean, also, we don't need to talk about it um, It was just something. Yeah, I mean, the first seventeen years. First seventeen years was like I was just keeping myself very busy because when you don't have time, you don't have time to process. Like, so it doesn't get to you. A lot of people were warning me, "You're gonna get burned out. Uh, you know, you're gonna get. That's it. You just one day it's gonna hit you. You're gonna be depressed, and and it would be hard to get up again. You know." And I was just keeping myself busy by doing so many things. Like my phone is on 24-7. I never turn off my phone. So, and I'm always doing so many things. I'm the kind of person that liked doing 10 things at the same time. And, and so that kind of worked. But then when COVID came, that's the first time. So a person that had been doing 150 trips a year minimum and suddenly into sitting like two whole years at home, that, that just... Um, so when first COVID uh, hit and, and I was just, you know, I was just sitting and I wanted to tweet like a thread about like uh, the stories that touched me most. Uh, and so I was telling each story of refugees that have touched me so far. And, and But when I reached like story number six, I was so exhausted and it felt like I was back at that time. So I went into deep depression for the whole year. Like I, all I did was like just stay in bed and... and binge watch series and, and, and things. So that's, my body needed that. So I was like, 
I will, I will do that. So I think that's the first time that it hit me. But luckily, uh, in the past seven years, I've been going to the gym and, and, and so I kind of saved my life. Like the past two years and a half, if it wasn't for the gym, um, I would have been like, um, I wouldn't get up from the PTSD that I was feeling at that time. It was like totally triggered, but because I haven't processed all these things for many, many years. So it all hit me all at once. And, and it was awful. I, no matter what I did, no matter how de- depressed I was, uh, one thing I was doing was like, nope, I'm not stopping going to the gym. At least I have to do that at least one hour a day. So uh, doing that at least one hour a day kind of gave me the energy that I needed. So that, that was a way of I could get up from the bed at least like at least even if it's for one hour and go and work out and come back after one hour and do the same thing sleep the whole day and and but it didn't hit me mentally I think it was the exercise that helped so it's it's not easy trauma is especially when it comes to activists most of us suffer and we don't we hardly think about ourselves and and there's no self-love but you know as you get older you learn and then you say to yourself like if I'm not well then I cannot even give the help that I'm giving to others right now. So and, and so I'm trying to put myself first and, and, and to at least give myself a day, an hour a day where I can do whatever it is that I want to. It could be reading, it could be going to the gym or going to a spa or anything, but just where I feel this is me time. Uh, and during that time, I don't want to give anybody an attention. It's my hour. So that now I, at least I'm trying to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I actually wanted to ask you about how you, you know, you take care of yourself because that's a lot. And for all those, year, all those years, like, that's just, that's a lot. Yeah. Taking in all that energy, uh, I can't even begin to imagine yeah, yeah. what that, that was like. Um, but so looking at the past two days, we've had uh, the decolonizing the internet sessions what would you say is your biggest takeaway? It could be one, two, three. I mean, just being here and meeting, I didn't know. I mean, like, I know there are African feminists, but I didn't know that there are this many African feminists young <laughs> and into tech. And, and so that part was the coolest part, I think, uh, meeting many of strong African feminists in one place. I think that that, that is the biggest takeaway of <laughs> this event. But, of course, the discussions were interesting as well, like uh, having coming from, dif- you know, people have different perspectives, like the way I see it, because having me growing up in Europe and, and if you are growing up here in, in Africa, so the way you see things and the way I see things is totally different. So that part was interesting how uh, it applies for different per- person when, what decolonizing internet could mean and I mean like just the space having a space I mean like we don't even have that you know so having this space and 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 networking with this many African women I will cherish that and I yeah I think (laughs) so no I I totally 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 understand and um maybe just before we wrap up is there anything you'd like to tell the world? You know, this is going to go on platforms. You know, we're going to share it everywhere. So is there anything that you'd love to just tell the people who will be listening to your voice? 
Yeah, I mean, um, what I would like to say to your listeners is just pick up and, and, and try to give and it's, 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 it gives you pleasure, it gives you peace of mind. So I see a lot of people often, especially Africans, majority of us are pessimists and who says, I think that it's not going to change. Like I get that all the time whenever in Africa, it's like, you think you can change this government? I'm like, but if you don't start, like you can never change. So one person can change a lot. So if, if as a single mother raising two kids by myself, uh, and running radio from my kitchen for the past 20 years and, and managed to save over 30,000 people. Uh, if I can do that by myself, why not you? So uh, I hope that I get to inspire young people uh, into doing some good work in your community. Start small. It always, you can start small, but don't get discouraged. If there's someone inspired, you can reach out to me on Twitter, on Facebook. I'm happy to to be a big sister for anyone interested. So just stand up for your rights because nobody will. And, and uh, so my advice is like, let's just not sit and wait for somebody to change for us. Like we, we have to take action. All of us are responsible for the life that we have. Like people complain always, oh, but this country, that country, there's no job or there's not this, there is not that, there's not this right. But at the same time, I always ask about it, what are you doing about it? So uh, be the person that uh, that do instead of the person that complains. So this is my advice to everyone. Mm -hmm. And thank you for having me. Thank you. This was so intense. Like you said, stand up for yourself because no one else will, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> thank you for being on our podcast, for your generosity, for your fierceness, for your intellect, for your tenacity, your resilience. Oh, thank you, Mira. My pleasure. Hey! Thank you, thank you, thank you very much for joining us for the Femininja podcast. We really believe and trust that you have enjoyed our conversations and they have pricked some thinking, some, some, some kind of wanting to find out more about feminism, about patriarchy, and what is the role for each one of us in detonating patriarchy and proudly and boldly claiming ourselves as feminists. So stay tuned, keep following us, engage with us on Feminine website www.femnet.org Thank you. You can follow Who's Knowledge on Twitter at Who's Knowledge.